our job isn't to stand and sound like some great expert who's got this reservoir of knowledge that no one else has. To me, that's the opposite of good coaching. To me, good coaching is just some simplicity and clarity about who we are, what we want to achieve, and how we're going to go about it. I don't see it any more complicated than that. What's up, everybody? Welcome back, or welcome to Conversations Without Limits. This is a space where we courageously explore the stories, the secrets, and skills of the world's top performers. So what does it take for these people to push beyond limitations and get to the top of their game? What can we learn from them? What can we bring into our own lives to enhance our own performance? And ultimately, how can we make the world a better place, the upper edges of our performance? on the top of our game. So the conversations are real, they're honest, they're courageous, they're great fun, and each episode is designed to bring the best out in the people that are on the podcast, support you and bring the best out in you. So excited to introduce this week's guest, Owen Eastwood. Owen is a fellow performance coach, and he's engaged by high-profile teams around the world that are hunting through the culture. Owen's most recent success was with the European Ryder Cup team, and I have no doubt in Owen's role and bringing about that success. He also works with and has worked with other really high profile teams such as Southgate and the English national football team, the British Olympic team, South African cricket, command group of NATO, corporate leadership teams such as the Accenture Global Leadership Team, Elite Ballet and the list goes on. So no better person to speak to about how can we create the environments, people to come together and do exceptional things. How can we individually create the environment for us to bring about our best. In essence, we spoke about life is all about tapping in to the ancient code and evolutionary understanding of what it takes to make humans great and what it takes for humans to do their best work together. So with that being said, guys, let's go right in and I hope you enjoy. So Owen, welcome. It is absolutely wonderful to have you on the podcast and wonderful to connect. Well, thank so you for inviting me. Appreciate it. Absolutely, man. So. I'd love to start kind of, you know, to kind of understand you more on, right? Maybe to kind of look at you as a person, you as a human being, and a lot of who we are in our lives as adults is kind of driven by our experiences in our earlier years, in our childhood and in our, um, you know, our, our guardians and, you know, people around us when we were younger. So I'd love to just understand more about kind of your childhood on and, you know, some some situations or some experiences from your childhood that have really informed and, and impacted the person you are today and, and the work you do as well. Well, I agree with your premise there. I think we are very much shaped by our childhoods and our sense of identity. So there's lots of different aspects which I would connect to, but I suppose the most important one is, and the one I talk about in belonging um, is, is my father passing away when I was five. He was 41 my mum was 39, my brothers were 12 and 10, and my sister was three. So, um, you know, he died suddenly, and that had a obviously a traumatising effect on us all. But beyond that, what, what sort of happened is when I moved between ages five and 12, I, I really felt quite lost. I didn't really feel like I belonged anywhere. You know, I felt very, very lonely, even though we had a massive family, um, you know, beyond my siblings. Yeah. 
And when I was 12, I, I wrote a letter to a Maori tribe called Naitahu in New Zealand um, because my father was an only child and he was half English and half Maori. But I, because he's an only child and my grandmother lived a thousand miles away, I never really mm. had any connection to either of those. And my siblings sort of cracked on with their life and they were sort of, I think, reasonably happy. But for me, I, I just did feel lost, probably a bit yeah. of a pissed off teenager. There's something definitely new was missing. And anyway, I wrote to the Maori tribe and then they, I just wrote if they knew who I was, you know, based on who my father was and my grandmother was. And they wrote a very, very beautiful letter back to me saying, we know who you are and you belong here. And then they and they included like a thousand years of my ancestors. They highlighted some mm. of my ancestors, mainly female ancestors, which is interesting, who had quite epic lives, and told me those stories. And it was—I've never forgotten the feeling. It was from quite lost and probably quite lonely to someone who had this euphoric sense of belonging. So mm. that was when I was twelve. The other thing they really taught me, which I, I sort of deepened later, was this idea of whakapapa, which is a Maori yeah. spiritual idea, which is that each of us, no matter what community it is, you know, whether it's your family, whether it's your nation, whether it's coming from Cork, whether it's your sports teams, your schools, yeah. whatever community you feel you belong to, that they all have an origin story. And the yeah. idea is that all of us who are part of that community are in a line with our arms interlocked together. And yep. it started with our founders of the origin story, and it ends at the end of time. And the metaphor is simply that the sun first shone on our origin story and moves down the line and reveals each of us in turn. So what you being alive or wearing that shirt that you've worn at Cork, all of these things are the moment when the sun's shining on you. And it really invites you to write your own chapter of the story and so that, that they are very powerful ideas that I got when I was about 12 and definitely have shaped my whole approach to coaching team culture. Thanks, Owen. Um, really appreciate your, your your sharing that. So, fuck a papa, right? I, uh, I was actually doing a bit of work yesterday and I brought that concept into, into the team and it was pretty, it was very powerful. No, I didn't pronounce it like that. I said waka papa, and I just yeah, left it at that. Okay. But I, I get more comfortable with it. But the the idea that the the sun shines, you know, the idea that it, that that like in this particular instance, it was um the plant leadership team of a pharmaceutical company. The 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 plant was set up forty years ago, and it was you know it was kind of like we explored that you know that the sun rose and it and it and it moves and and you know as as it moves, it's it's, it's now on us, right? It's now on this team right here. Um, to honor and respect, I suppose, what has gone before us and what was built. But the other question I think going that is, is a part of that as, as well as other questions is what needs mending now, right? What needs mending now? And I think there was such rich power comes in that. Yeah. And I'm just curious about um that's true. You know, that that's that what you know, even for your own in your own life, you know, how you relate to that what needs mending now um mm. Question, you know, and as the sun shines on you, and I think even for your your father that passed away, which I'm terribly sorry for you, and and um, you know, it's 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 very traumatic. But I think um, as I as I researched and leading into our conversation, that that what needs mainly know and the connection to your father, it's um, he's still obviously you know he's a part of you, core in you, you know, and I think that's um, something that you know I'd love to explore as well, and how you how you bring your father into your life every day. That idea of, you know, fuck a papa or waka papa, whatever yeah. way you want to pronounce it, that both are okay. 
that idea, if you think about it from a family point of view, what the tribe were telling me as a 12-year-old is that you, your arms are interlocked with those who came before you. So that's your father. So what they were saying is the son has moved off from him and it's now on you and your brothers and sisters and your mother, but and in due course will be on your own children. But that you are still standing in this line of people with your father beside you and your arms are locked together and they can that can never be broken. So just from an emotional point of view, that's a fantastic thing to hear as a 12-year-old when you've lost your father. Mm. And but but uh, you know, from a performance coaching point of view, it applies to more than that. And mm. the mending bit is very important. It's great that you've picked up on that. What's important is when we think about being part of the story of us. You know, we don't want to turn it into a fairy tale. You know, people have a pretty good BS detector. And if you're standing in front of a team and trying to make it out as though this is just a highlights reel, you know, people see through that. So mm. what, what I was taught, and this is what I apply, is that when the sun is shining upon you, yes, you are a guardian of the things that came before you. That's very important. You understand that role that you have. It's not all about you and what you can get out of this moment. It's about being a guardian of something bigger than yourself. So that's something that we instill. But also we do have to ask the honest question is, is what, it, what what is it that we're inheriting? It's not going to be perfect. So what are the things that we want to maybe get rid of, actually? And also what are the things we want to mend? And as an example, yeah. I work with some big corporates where they're very proud of their history and they've done some pretty amazing things. But when yeah. we ask the question, what needs mending, often people will say, this has been dominated by white males, just has. I mean, that's always been the way. And yeah. they're actually, if, you, if you're not a white male, it's actually been very, very difficult historically to really uh, have an equal opportunity to progress and to lead here. So, so you know, that's an honest answer to that question. It's very proud of the heritage, but at the same time, there are things that aren't great and mm. need to be approached. And that becomes part of the story that we write, is that we're going yeah. to fix those things. I want to just very, very insightful and a lot of things we can draw on to take the conversation further. But just before we do, I'd love to, I'd like to kind of just pause on your father passing and, and how you've, dealt with that because I can't help but wonder if there's people listening in that even in their adults at this moment in time and they still you know would would, would look back and reflect and, and hold that trauma very um very strongly and I suppose is there anything in addition to what you would have shared that they could do or that they could um a mindset or something or just is there anything you'd like to share with them to help them to navigate you know losing such um, an important figure in their lives at a young age well it's only really a personal experiences you know i'm not a psychologist or, or a therapist yeah. but what, what i've has helped me anyway was definitely that fuck up up framing mm. just that idea that him and i our arms are still locked together and that's unbreakable that actually just made me feel good um, when I was a kid, and it still does. Secondly, I, I found it really, really comforting to know more and more about his story. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. I, he passed away when I was only five, so I never really got a chance to listen directly from him. But I've done a lot of talking with family, doing own research, but not only about him, but about his own father, who was a fought in the Royal Navy in the First World War and then and then migrated to New Zealand. Um, 
And just as I excavate stories around him and where he came from and then communicate them down to my own children, I, I feel like, you know, we're keeping his spirit alive in that sense. Mm. And, and I feel good about that. So what, what I don't want to have is like, that is just something that is lost and gone. I don't feel like that at all. Um, feel like he is still part of our story and that my children have that passed on and then in due course they'll be able to explain that to their children. So, yeah, I come from a culture where that type of thing, the, our heritage and lineage is very important, mm. just as it is with your culture. So yeah. I think, you know, being quite intentional around understanding uh, who they were and where they came from and, you know, passing that on, that has helped me a lot. Thanks, Ron. Powerful. Thanks very much. So you got Irish heritage as well. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about where that comes from. The dailies of Dingle. Shout yes. out. <laughs> the Inch Peninsula, yeah, County Kerry. So my mother is quite, quite a cool story, I think. In the 1860s, um, in the aftermath of the Great Famine, there were four brothers, um, Daly brothers. Um, one of them stayed on the Inch Peninsula and farmed and actually was <laughs> very sadly drowned at quite a young age in a river in an accident. But the other three brothers, and I can't even imagine this the emotion and trauma for the family when they decided, but at the aftermath of the famine, the three brothers, other brothers decided they were going to leave Ireland and find a better life somewhere else. One went ultimately to Canada and then the United States and lived there. And, and we are in touch with their family now. This is 1860s, but we we still are in touch with them. Yeah. Uh, the other one went to Australia and settled in Victoria. I think that was around the gold rush there. And then the third one came straight to New Zealand, uh, Mickey Daly, and that was my ancestor. So the three brothers all left never to, and, and one stayed, and the four brothers were never ever to see each other again. I mean, you just hard to yeah. imagine that, isn't it? But... My mother and I went and visited the village and quite incredibly when we were there, we just started asking around about the dailies and they pointed up to the top of the hill and said, um, you might want to go up there. One of, yeah. yeah. And so we went up there and knocked on the door literally and there was, I think his name was James Daly, he was about 80. And anyway, we, we just said we're, the, we're dailies from New Zealand. And he knew all about us. He knew all about those brothers. He explained that to us, actually, and he invited us in, and we spent the afternoon with him. Then we went down to the churchyard and saw the names of all these um, people who died recently, but they had exactly the same names, James, Patrick, William, all of these names as we have back um, in New Zealand. It's just quite amazing. There's quite a lot to get your head around, but really, really cool. And I'm very proud of that part of my heritage. In fact, I'm... My son's just turned 16 and we're going to go over and do a little bit of a um, exploration of that part of his heritage soon. Brilliant. Amazing one. It's great that, it's great that you're, um, like you look at Papa, and then obviously the the learnings you took from that are what, like how you bring that to help other teams and people, I suppose, to you know create an optimal environment and team experience to perform their best. Like that's a very spiritual practice from the Maori tribe and the Maori um, do you bring any other tribal or indigenous spiritual practices into what you do with teams? I do. Explored that? Yeah, I mean, because it's just who I am and I'm not yeah. a, you know, like you and I both call ourselves performance coaches. I haven't got a coaching certificate. I've got no qualifications whatsoever. I just 
get invited and turn up and can only be myself. And, mm. um, you know, one of the principles that I feel strongly about is that if you want to build a great team, that is a spiritual exercise. And, you know, people don't necessarily talk like that. And some people don't feel comfortable talking like that. But I think that is the truth. And in fact, Wayne Smith, I'd say, is probably the top rugby coach in the world, mm. has been very explicit about the same thing. And the spirituality comes from not a, in a religious sense. The spirituality comes from, I think the definition is two limbs to it. The first part is an individual connected to a higher purpose than their own. Okay, so we, I, I can't see how you create a high-performing environment or a high-performing team without connecting someone um, to something bigger than themselves. And the second limb of spirituality is a profound emotional communion between people. And again, I don't see how you build a high-performing team without doing that. You know, they need to have uncommon levels of trust and connection with each other to really perform at the highest levels under pressure. So I, I don't think we need to be shy about it. I think it is a spiritual exercise. Now, I, I don't often use the Maori terminology. I'm just talking in a common sense way. Like yeah. we are part of something that goes before us and is going to come after us. I don't need to use the word whakapapa. I mean, that's just common yeah. sense. Yes, we are. Yeah. But unless you're intentional about connecting the players and the staff to that, then they'll just default to it's all about me and it's all about this moment and lose perspective. Yeah. So, you know, another thing that I learned from the, the cultural side of the Maori and, and the wider Polynesian people is, which I use in my work, is these ideas of tapu, T-A-P-U, which means sacred, and noa, N-O-A, which means um, autonomy. And I think every high-performing environment, and in fact, every environment needs to have clarity around what are the things that are sacred to being part of this team, and what are the where are the areas that we're happy for people to have a sense of self-expression and autonomy. Um, and also with organisations which you're used to working with, when they're quite complicated and there's lots of different geographies and offices and silos yeah. and everything, they're not all going to be clones of each other. I mean, it's complete madness to to think yeah. that it's po is this impossible. So what they need to do is be bound together by something, and that something is what is non-negotiable and sacred to all of us. Um, you know, with the English Football Association I've worked with for six years, you know, we've got 14 national teams. They're never going to be clones of each other, and nor would that be a good thing. But what they have become clear on is there are certain things for all of us that are sacred in how we set up these teams, and that includes the style of play, which is aligned, Yep. Um, a cultural blueprint, um, our expectations on our coaches and managers. So there are certain things which we can say that, you know, if you want to coach and be part of this, you need to be able to buy into these things. But at the same time, you've got a lot of autonomy, you know, around how you do things, how you train, stuff yeah. like that. That's fine. Yeah, it's very, it's very human one, isn't it? It's very... Like it's tapping into what's inherent in every human, isn't it? It's kind of like this. This is how humans, you know, what's what's deep within us from a biological, psychological sense. You're 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 bringing that to life, you know, because you know you you know yourself around where we all come from, tribes and hunter gatherers. It's just bringing that to modern life, isn't it? Well, I think you've, I think you've nailed it. That that is it. And our job isn't to stand and sound like some great expert who's got this reservoir of knowledge that no one else has. To me, that's the opposite of good coaching. To me, good coaching is 
just some simplicity and clarity about who we are, what we want to achieve, and how we're going to go about it. I don't see it any more complicated than that. And, you know, I find a lot of corporate speak pretty unhelpful. Um, so because I'm untrained in this, as, you know, I had a previous career as a lawyer and quite an accidental transition to do this, I'm not, I haven't got any of that baggage, really. I'm not trying to drive a model that people need to implement. I don't have yeah. one. Yeah. Um, and I'm not trying to double down on a bit of research because um, I'm not an academic, just trying to get people to have a bit of a consideration and conversation around those simple things. Who are we? Why are we here? What would success look like and how are we going to go about it? Yeah, that's everything. But to get alignment and a shared understanding and alignment and commitment, each lens of that question is it requires um, somebody a skill and as a character of yourself to to bring people through that process but to circle back you mentioned lawyer so mm. you tell me about i think you you started as a lawyer in new zealand and went to london or is it yeah. just tell us about that time yeah tell me about your experience as a lawyer because i know you mentioned you loved being a lawyer mm. and you obviously love this more <laughs> um well i was my family are all farmers um and I didn't fancy it at all. It was far too hard work. And where I grew up, the south, southern coast of the South Island of New Zealand, is a, a very, very bitter, wild climate. Yeah. And so, I, you know, just to be, if I was honest, uh, I didn't quite fancy that. No. Your brothers and family all working the farm? Well, they still work in the farm. outside, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they, they do different different sort of jobs down there. They, they still live down there. But no, no, I didn't really fancy it. So... I wasn't particularly academic at school early on, um, but I sort of hung in there on the education process, hoping that some job which would be attractive would come my way. I actually wanted to be a sports journalist as well at one point, and then a PE teacher. Right. So I had a few ideas, but I sort of got to the end of high school and still wasn't, didn't have really clarity on it. So everybody, my mates all went to university, and I thought I'd do that. So I thought I'd do law, and I didn't know much about it and study, but I absolutely loved it because I, I am passionate about history. And history is a fundamental element of law. You know, you're applying precedent of things that have gone before to new situations. Um, you can't really understand any law unless you understand the context in which it came from. So I, mm. the fact that I enjoyed history really, really helped me. Um, enjoyed um, debating in English. So it was a good, good fit for me. So then I, okay, I'll do it. So then I became became qualified as a lawyer. I enjoyed that. And then in my late 20s, I came and relocated, like most New Zealand graduates do, to live in London for a couple of years. We had some arrangement with the government. We were allowed to do that for a while, mm. two years, I think, and joined a law firm in London and ultimately, you know, loved that. Really, really lovely environment, good clients, very, you know, number one employment law team, which was the department I was in, so really high quality work. Stayed there for 15 years and became a partner. And but I did a bit of sports law on the side, so I'd look after the All Blacks when they came into it at the UK, and we had a few clients in football and Porrick Harrington and golf and just a few different yeah. people, and got a bit of exposed to that environment. And I think, like a lot of occupations, if you're a, if you're a, a decent lawyer, the client actually doesn't really uh, use that terminology. They think more of you as a trusted advisor. And what I found is that. When, yeah. when they you know when, when they knew that you knew their context and you'd been through a few battles with them 
they started just to talk about things beyond the law. And that's how I got into coaching, really. They would just talk about, actually, these are the sort of things that we don't, we can't figure out. And these are the sort of things that seem to be holding our people back. And these are the sort of personalities which mm. are struggling to manage. And these conversations just came from being a trusted advisor. And ultimately, people would, you'd have a chat over a drink or whatever and share some ideas. And ultimately, people started to say, well, actually, that doesn't sound like too bad an idea. Do you, do you want to maybe come in and help us do that? And yeah. that was a bit scary when they asked that question, but I had to go with it and... Yeah, it started from there, really. So the All Blacks was the first team you immersed yourself in on? Um, not so much. I haven't coached in that environment. I was their lawyer for 12 years when they had disciplinary issues, so I got to know them a little bit. Also, Adidas did a review of their sponsorship of the All Blacks at one point, and I was part of the team that um, was involved in that, and so I was asked to articulate some of those spiritual aspects of the All Blacks mm. team culture for, to Adidas. So, yeah, the All Blacks, um, yeah, had some great moments and times with them, but it's not one of the teams I'd list down as having coached, no. You, you, so what year was that? Oh, you said 2011, 2015, they were in the World Cup back-to-back. Yeah, was it no, around that time? It was, it was but as in that cycle leading up to 2011. So that what was it like? So can you tell me a little bit more about what it was like kind of even in that environment because obviously we reference how strong the environment is for anything whether it's high performance or suboptimal performance or you know conflict the environment will I think 70% on is that kind of a rough figure around yeah. 70% is dictated by the environment so like, what was the all environment like and your I suppose at that point maybe could be that that your early that's your kind of first or I wouldn't say your first experience but you're going into an environment of high-level performance rugby players that are doing things at an optimal level, that must have been powerful to just see that kind of very vividly, right? As you were kind of studying and bringing back and say, "Study this." Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I was going in and out. Um, I wasn't, and through a sustained period with them. Um, so I tell you, I, I, it's a good question, though. I think actually, and this applies right through, and I've. But the, I think the thing that struck me in that very early stages, which has stuck with me, is these people are just completely normal. The, the, I think there is a bit of BS around high performance and that it, it's it's suits some people to treat it as quite elitist, but actually it's not. I don't think so. Um, I, I, it, again, I worked with England football team for over a six-year period, and I was actually encouraged by a few people not to do that because they said, no, these yeah. guys are going to be so away from what you believe in. They're going to be so selfish, obsessed with themselves. You're not going to really enjoy it. You know, they're not going to be approachable. Absolute rubbish. Yeah. They are a yeah. humble, bloody good set of guys. So I suppose what I'm saying is that if I was to take my brother into these environments, you know, he might go, oh, you know, this is going to be amazing. You're going to meet these sort of like superheroes. It's not like that at all, as you know, from your experiences in your yeah. own work. They're just good Normal people. people. It's ve- and also very, very rare that you get someone who there's a bit of a dickhead. I mean, in fact, in all of the work that I've done in this space, I can't name one person like that that I've ever come across. And although yeah. you know people like talking about it and sell it and and you know pigeonholing people, I haven't come across it. So I think the normality of it was the thing that struck me. 
And and, and the yeah. normality of it is a thing that stays with me. And it's not all that, and, and it's it's not what people perceive. Um, they're just people who have are talented, but most of all have some sort of form of ambition and energy towards a goal. And then yeah. the thing I love is when they all decide to buy into something which is a shared experience to doing it together rather than all being about themselves. I saw I was at Rory McIlroy or Shane Lowry mentioned about they were around the they were just around the fire pit talking about yeah. themselves and the stories, you know, and I think, geez, that's such um yeah, it's such power in that. And like for the guys as well, it's an individual sport for a lot of the time. Yeah. So to connect them and for them to be involved in a team sport, it must be I mean, that's where the best of life exists when you're on a journey together. So I, I'd imagine there was huge energy and momentum that was generated through your work with them over time. And when it came to the actual performance, you know. Yeah. The- Actually, just picking up on something you said there, you know, Rory did. He, he he said that for him, the genesis of this team was that time they spent about three weeks ago where they just went for 24 hours to Rome. The Americans yeah. did the same thing, but three of their players didn't come. So there's a difference uh, right there. But there you go. What what did the what did the what Rory mentioned was that they sat around the fire pit and just chatted. Now, this this is a good example. This is not elitist, complicated stuff. You know what we these twelve athletes had never been in a team before, and some of them had never physically met each other before. You know, so yeah. what would you do? I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? You you, you get the, you create a space for them just to have a chat to each other, and you know it was it was literally around the fire pit because it was in the evening, which is actually quite a part, big part of human history to do that. But yeah. it, you know, it's like you know, it, I'm no brilliant mind around this, am I? I mean, how obvious is that? And and actually, <laughs> I think I think where, where you want to put your attention is why do people not do that? rather than anything special about doing it. Why? I, I, and it's what, what amazes me, I'm sort of rambling on a little bit here, but no. in, in a corporate environment, you know, this week I gave a presentation and explained a little bit about these basic things, and everyone's nodding away, yet I imagine 90% of them are going to go back to their own teams. Yeah. I've never actually sat down and connected as, you know, people rather than job titles, and they won't do it either. Uh, and I don't yeah. understand the, the cognitive dissonance. Yeah, I know. I, I, I experience the same, one because one of the things that I do, like if I work with a team, I do an immersion period for a couple of months and then we do a launch. So it's kind of actually say ABC, assess, build, coach. And um, in the launch, very one of the very first things I do is I get them in a circle, just sharing their story itself with the leader role modeling very vulnerably challenges the choices their values they brought them to this team right here right now yeah and always it's like i never realized that i never i can't believe you know and the power and momentum comes from just them connecting with each other at a human level that they've never done they could be working with each other for 15 years and they would have never ever really connected um unbelievable and i don't know i like i suppose on my, my why i'm saying that is because why is it so hard for people to do, we, I had to facilitate that. I had to just step them like rungs on a ladder in a way where you're being vulnerable little by little. So that when they got to the point to be themselves fully authentically and share it with each other, they were ready. But why can't, why can't it be done naturally in life, especially in these organizations and the same in sporting teams as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's a challenge everywhere naturally for that to, to happen without it being guided. Well, 
often people will say they're too busy. Yeah. Uh, which again to me is is nonsense. Before you get into the deep work, you are going to get a huge return on your dividend if you connect people so that they get to know each other, they have a bit of trust, a bit of psychological safety with each other, have the ability to be vulnerable with each other, have the ability to challenge each other if they need to. Mm. That comes out of being relational. You know, you don't get those things where people have just transactional relationships. So I don't buy into we're too busy. I actually think Part of it is that a lot of leaders are personally a little bit uncomfortable being vulnerable. They don't necessarily want to show any emotional vulnerability, which can happen if they talk about their backstory. Um, yeah. They're also maybe not very comfortable with other people being emotional around them. And I know, you know, guys like me, a lot of people like that feel feeling that that way. But my question to them is, therefore, if you do not do that work, are you doing it for yourself rather than the team? What is best for the team? And if you have to experience a bit of discomfort, then why should that veto what is best for the yeah. team? You, know, you need to get over yourself. And and so that's part of it as well. But, you know, you know, when I wrote Belonging, I was just pointing out that our ancestors have actually been great at this forever. And it's mm. actually now we're getting less skill around these areas, which is a bit worrying. We're getting a bit over-obsessed with strategy, with corporate speak, um, with analytics and data. We think that's yeah. where all the answers lie, but actually these are human endeavours and we've got to weave our people together. Can you talk a little bit on about the, the kind of, I call it, it's not the science, right, but it's the biology and kind of psychology behind when people do connect what it does internally you know for mm. chemicals and reward systems inside that are triggered and activated as a result of just simply just connecting with someone as a, and being part of that team i mean this came a little bit from me having a bit of an uneducated approach to coaching i you know and this is just me okay i'm not speaking for anybody else but when i would listen to psychologists explain a you know a model or a framework or whatever I, I, I something about it never stuck was just wasn't sticky with me I'm not sure exactly what it was but maybe for my lawyering background meant that I wanted a bit more evidence <laughs> and so, so you know a psychologist might say well here we have an attachment model or identity model and it would all sound very credible but for, I don't know I just couldn't get my hands around it mm. I couldn't I just found it not very not direct enough I suppose and then I was Doing, I read a fantastic book called Behave by Robert Sapolsky, who's the head of uh, neuroscience at uh, Stanford yeah. University. It's a it's a hell of a book. Um, it's a big book, and it's a it's not a necessarily an easy read, but it's got some absolute gold in it. But basically, what I learned from that book was everyone thinks that behavior is driven by a mindset, you know, psychology, but actually something profound happens before the mindset, and that is your hormonal state. So if if you are and I in a, are in a high stressed state, a lot of cortisol in our system, it's going mm. to lead to certain types of behaviours, quite predictably. Whilst if you're sort of running on dopamine and oxytocin, you know, very very energising, but I would say you know constructive hormones, then we're going to behave in a completely different way. So mm. where I got to, and I only, you know I just talk about it lightly, really, in belonging, but I find it very useful to understand that. What I think a high-performing environment does well is manage stress levels, 
because we know people won't be vulnerable. People's communication and decision-making diminish when they're in a high-stress state. So we don't want that. It's stressful enough, whatever we're going to do. Playing in the Ryder Cup is going to be mm. stressful. We don't need to create an environment where it you know, takes it up another two levels. We actually want to reduce it down, which is something Gareth Southgate's done a good job of with England. Um, and we want to put dopamine and oxytocin. So dopamine, you know, what the hell are we doing? You know, what's their aspiration? What's the purpose behind that? Once you start talking like that, people have dopamine releases. When you do the thing that Rory talked about, whether you sit around the fire pit and listen to each other, you do. You literally can measure it. It's not like yeah, yeah. theory. It's factual. It's been. It's done. Yeah. Is that your bloods will show that you have a surge in oxytocin. These are very, very energizing, and they lead to completely different behaviors. So those guys, if they're in a high-stress state, wouldn't, you know, say I'm scared but after you've done that type of work and you've got a different you're in a different hormonal state high levels of oxytocin you you could tell somebody you know what i'm going bloody yeah. scared right now wouldn't mind talking about it so yeah that's a, for me a very useful way when i'm in an environment i'm like thinking what is the hormonal state we want to get these guys to and um, and these and gals as well and and then have a engineer that and I actually think good coaching is, and good leadership re- requires quite a lot of intentional engineering. Yeah, it's because it's, as you're talking, I'm refer- I'm thinking about um, even organisations when they have their meetings when they're in a high stress cortisol state. You know, those meetings are maybe what they want to just get over and done with. Or, you know, if you can bring that connectedness to those meetings with more intention, that's the time when they're together. That's the time when they do their work. But it kind of pivoted a little bit with that. Um, yeah, I was I was thinking about COVID nineteen and how that impacted our you know our, our levels of well being and I suppose the science behind it because it does tap into hunter gatherers as well and our our ancestors and what's in our evolutionary system. So I think you know I suppose belonging and being connected, being a part of a tribe, that really kind of isolated everybody for a period of time and people were feeling. You know, not as good as what they, sh- you know, they were feeling dull and down. And there's actually science to that as well. There's a peptide that is released when you're isolating, because yeah. if you did, if you did that in evolutionary times, you wouldn't survive. You wouldn't be here. But also, likewise, you get rewarded by being part of a tribe, being, being in a, in a, in a team in a community, and doing something valuable to bring that community forward. And you get rewarded through all of those dopamine, oxytocin, and all of that serotonin, like so. I think people when they try to make sense of COVID nineteen and, and how they were feeling back then, it's, it's really it's, it's really simple and there's a science to it. Um, and I think that's um, I think that's pretty much even though you're inside in work and you're inside in the sport team or wherever it is, in absence of that connection, you can still feel that that way because you're not actually experiencing each other as a as a community working towards a worthy endeavor. You're still you still might feel isolated as part of that. Which is important to, to distinguish as well, I think, going, you know, not to take things for granted. Yeah, it's like belonging's a human need. And it does give us a huge amount of warmth and changes our hormonal state when we experience it. And there's multiple different ways of going about it. I mean, during COVID, uh, you know, the sort of narrative is that well, people lost a sense of connection and they lost a sense of belonging. Well, it's, it's not quite true for everybody that's for sure you know i worked with some coaches who actually took the connection and belonging to a completely different level than what it was in person yeah you know, they would reach out not only to the athlete but to the athlete's partner 
and mm. stay connected to them the whole time and just checking in on things and how things were and and not for any cynical purposes other than wanting to make sure that that sense of belonging wasn't diminished. And then some leaders also started to, you know, we're, we're normally too busy to do this, but we're going to do it. We're actually going to look at the heritage of this team. Like we're going to actually connect with the story of that we've inherited. Some of those things around whakapapa we spoke about, they actually did it. So, you know, a lot of teams in the reality of the world now is when we don't have the same COVID um, environment, but people are isolated from each other. People are working at home more and, and a lot of businesses have multiple parts where people don't physically get together. So we haven't moved on from it. It's, it is our reality and it comes down to the quality of leadership as to whether you're able to give people feedback one-on-one, check in on them one-on-one, mm. um, have sessions where the whole team come on to Zoom or Teams and hear a bit about what we're doing right now, where, what our vision is, but also some stories from the past that are quite insightful about how we could go about things. It's up to, you know, if you don't want to do any of that, that's fine. And you will have a reduced level of belonging and connection, people feeling more isolated. Don't mm. have to be like that. And that's what, you know, there's still beautiful examples around where people are really using technology to go to a higher level. Yeah, that's a good point, Don. Um, I think there's no, you can always make improvements and bring people together. So there's no, I think there's no excuse, I think. But at that point in time, there was definitely, um, where leaders are ill-equipped to do that. I think the best leaders in the world are people that are more intentional about bringing connection. Saw that as an opportunity, right? So with challenge comes opportunity, I think. And those leaders will look at that challenge, see the opportunity. And I think that's a huge one. Um, you thinking about, you've done that piece of work with the All Blacks around just kind of connecting Adidas more strongly with the All Blacks branding and kind of bringing back to them the history of the All Blacks or the kind of heritage and spirit behind it. And after that, then it took off on, right? That was the kind of accidental shift from a lawyer to performance coach. So when was it actually, okay, I'm not working as a lawyer anymore. I'm going to just do this full time. When was that actually, when did that actually happen? Hmm. Well, it might've been, might've been similar to your journey. I mean, the first main project that I worked on really as a performance coach was working with the South African cricket team and in belonging. I spent a whole chapter talking about that. That was an incredible experience where, uh, the team had come from a very, very scarred history, as everybody understands, and had a, what I would say is sort of an, a superficial harmony as a team culture. Didn't, but but they did things from one, you know, Afrikaans sort of point of view. That was the way things were set up, and that's what we did. Yeah, but it wasn't really. I mean, it's the most diverse team in world sport, but they hadn't really created a shared team culture. So they've been world number one only twice in the previous decade and lost the ranking very quickly after they achieved it. So they had really good talent, but they weren't able to sustain anything. So they, I was part of a, um, a couple of people who was introduced in 2010 to really ultimately transform the team culture to what was called mm. the Proteophyre culture. And then they went on this incredible run of four years as world number one team yeah, with similar talent, but... A completely transformed culture and that sustained itself for the best part of the next decade so that was a, a, a wonderful experience i was still lawyering at that point then city football groups so manchester city new york city melbourne city they invited me to come in and spend time with each of those teams uh, they, again this is all word of mouth and i think it's interesting because I, you know i often get um, aspiring performance coaches 
you know, contact me. And it's actually quite hard to advise on how to plot your career path because mine was so unusual. Yeah. I got it in, into it by accident. Um, when you're a lawyer, you're told that the best marketing is doing a good job, and I think it's the yeah. same with coaching. So uh, obviously yeah. I, I did a reasonable job. People talk about it. They don't read about it. They talk about it to people they trust. So City Football Group, Man City, they came, and I was still lawyering at that point. And then the Football Association heard about that as well around the time Gareth Southgate was appointed. So they asked me to come and work there. And, you know, I had an opportunity to work with the, the four-star generals who run NATO, there's three of them, um, the Royal Ballet School. So all these things sort of morphed a little bit to the point where, yeah. Yeah, similar to you, I think, six or seven years ago, it got to the point, the tipping point where I couldn't yeah, do this couldn't in do my it. own time or on holidays as a lawyer. I had to take a step. Um, which I did, and you know, since been fortunate to have wonderful projects which I continue to work on. You miss being a lawyer, on? You miss that? No, I don't miss. It. I did enjoy it, and I'm glad I did it, and I'm proud of that. Yeah. And I think it's a really. I know people have certain views on it, but ultimately, the purpose of a lawyer, the historic purpose was to advise people on what their rights were and to represent them. And, and you know, there's a real sense of that was part of, I like helping people. I still do. That's what coaching's about. So, and I enjoyed it, but I don't miss it. I mean, it, I much more enjoy what I'm doing now. It's a bit more who I am. Hmm. I, I, I align with and resonate with what you shared there on. Well, can you tell me about, let's say, a, a typical journey for a team, and I know every team in a context is, is different, but like you know, you, you're a phone call or you're brought in, and kind of people really want you to work with this this group or this team. Uh, they've heard great things, and what's the what's the process? What's the journey? Just at a high level, what's kind of tell us about how how it looks? Well, I'm pretty tough with people on them giving me a very good brief as to why they want me to mm. come in. Uh, I'm not interested in something fluffy. You know, we want to create a high performance culture. That does I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? I mean, that's too mm. contextual that. So mm. what I'm interested in is checking some very fundamental things. First of all, what are you actually trying to achieve here? And I know that sounds incredibly lame, but I, I think you've probably got similar experience. It is eye-watering how often people can't answer that question coherently. Yeah. It's a simple question. What are you trying to achieve? And so, you know, sometimes it's a, a a metric, a number, or a trophy, but not a lot else behind it, and very little around how we would get there. So uh, the the first thing that I would spend time with them on is just checking and challenging around what are you actually trying to achieve here in a, in a holistic, three dimensional way, not just some you know strap line. And then the second part of the conversation then turns to, okay, now we're clear on what you're trying to achieve. What's your plan for achieving it? And that, that, that's what you may call strategy. Mm. But but what is, as a performance coach, what I will do is make sure you've actually got a strategy and I will check and challenge how coherent it is. So sometimes people have a strategy which is nothing more than just a wish or a hope. Mm. There isn't any data and analytics or real story behind it. There's not really a breakdown of how you are going, the measures you will need to implement yeah. to achieve it. So I, so, I will push yeah. people around that as well. 
And then the third thing is, so what does success look like? What's your plan for achieving? And then the final thing is, I want to know what your plan is for building an environment which enables rather than disables the achievement. Hmm. And that's done on at the collective team level, or is it initially done at the leader level and kind of initially and brought into the team then? Is, tell us, is, is that kind of the, the frame oh, yeah. in which you, you move? Uh, that, it def- that is an absolute responsibility of leaders. So that would not be a good meeting if we were doing that as a team. I think if I was an athlete or a performer in a team, I'd be extremely demotivated if I was having a, a session where it was being drawn out that we aren't really clear on what we're trying to achieve and we don't necessarily have a strong plan to unlock it and we haven't really thought about the environment we need to create. So no, I mean, we need to do a bit of rough and tumble and that's away from um, our performance, whether it's corporate performers or whether it's um, athletes. So that's at the higher levels of the leadership. And that's not a one-person conversation. So when I was... Two and a half years ago, I was lucky to be invited in by Harlequins Rugby Club in London, and um, they were in a not a great place from a performance point of view. And I insisted that you know the owner, the board, the CEO, the senior execs, the director of rugby, the head coaches, and the senior players, we had to get into a room and have that honest yeah. conversation, and we did that, and then we moved forward with a process around how we were going to strengthen all those areas. And then ultimately three or four months down the line, all of the staff and all the players were in a room and were able to present something compelling and coherent. And you know, I know it's a, possibly a bit coincidental, but that season we won the English <laughs> and Ben's and Not Not easy coincidence on. Well, you know, but so that, yeah, definitely that's a leadership challenge. And that's you know, where you yeah. find out who your leaders are versus your managers, I suppose, if they're able to really, really navigate that stuff. What's the, I suppose, where, where my thoughts are right now on is the, you know, you kind of mentioned the, I suppose, the involvement in a process like that. So, you know, what you don't, when you when you tell people, like I suppose this is very part you could have a very simple answer to this one, but uh, I'm just picturing a scenario where the management team of a sporting team as such comes in and tells tells or kind of sh- shares with the team this is the journey this is the environment we want to create this is how we want to get there you know to what degree does the team have involvement in that or you know you tell body something tell someone something about how they're going to do what they're going to do a lot of times there's a natural resistance to being told something so how do you navigate that tension uh, that's a good point so the way I think about it is I think it is the role of a leader to sketch out this is who we are, these are the things that we believe in, this is what we believe success looks like for us, this is our plan to unlock it, and this is the environment we want to create to enable it. So I I use the word sketch because what I then love to see is we take it to the people and they colour it in. <laughs> Okay. It's a good metaphor, so that, yeah. Yeah. And and you know, and that includes like they can push back and challenge and that's fine. Okay. That and they'll have an opportunity, an invitation to do that. But ultimately they need to bring it to life for themselves and how what their contribution looks like rather than being told what that will look like. And you know, that's very de-energizing when someone just mm. tells you to do something. It's much more energizing, as you know, to co-create it. So yeah, that's an important part of the process. 
for them to do that away. And, you know, as I get more experienced, I step back further and further from prescription and trust people more that they mm. actually will do that with a big heart and a lot of skill more than maybe people give them credit for. Yeah. Oh, this is powerful. Like, and I think there's an immersion period and then kind of the, when the leaders are ready, the team is brought together to sketch and where does what does the journey look like then on from thereafter kind of harlequins even that journey in itself that you won right that there was that that season you won the championship from maybe underperforming the previous seasons what was it like in between the win lifting that trophy and that kind of workshop or that together bringing it together everybody at a high level what was that journey like for the team and your support of of that journey I mean, sometimes people misunderstand a little bit about the way I work and they think, you know, these spiritual ideas and the story of the sun moving down and and, all, and it's all about that. But that's what that is, is the framing. And people mm. do get emotionally energized by good framing. So and whether it's a corporate team or a governmental team or a charity team or a sports team, it doesn't make any difference. It is very powerful when a leader has the ability just to stand and say, this is who we are and this is what we're going to try and achieve together. So, you know, and we've got different ways that we go about doing that. So that is the framing, but that's all that it is. You can't just say, okay, well, we want to be bring another medal back to our people and we want to be the world champions. Or You can't just sit there and hope. The next bit, is, which is true performance, is, okay, so we've got a strategy. How do we execute it well? And so if people actually were to watch my work, it's in the nitty gritty, it's the grainy stuff that actually I'm pushing. Like if a leader is saying these are the three parts of our strategy, I'm challenging them the whole time. Okay, so how have we moved on that this month? What are the obstacles yeah. to that actually um, being being successfully mm. executed? Do you know? If you don't know what the obstacles are, let's go and ask the people, the performers. Um it's trying to understand what are the things that we can control and what are the things that we aren't and making sure our focus is on the right things. Mm. And I absolutely love that. It's really in the weeds, details stuff, but it's not the sexy stuff that necessarily yeah. gets in the media. But that, that moves the dial. It's yeah. lost. Yeah. That's where it's one of lost. Yeah, that moves the dial, I think. And I can see how your lawyer background is definitely super valuable to the performance and what you're doing. Uh, is that fair to say on kind of that detail awareness around just being able to support teams in where they're being held back strategically? Maybe it could be a performance goal that just isn't measurable, it's too high, high in the sky, leaf in the wind, to be able to reverse engineer success through, through a process like that and hold accountability and challenge along the journey just through your natural awareness of blockages and things like that. Is that am I reading that right on? Possibly a bit. I mean, what I th think often is the downfall of teams is they do not have the discipline to stick to the plan and to stick to all the steps that need to be executed. And particularly if things are, there's a bit of adversity or maybe you know we're not getting the results early on, there's a tendency to go, okay, well, that's not working. Let's jump to plan B um, or, or get distracted by something. And I think like, I was a litigation lawyer, basically meant, you know, there was a dispute and ultimately this was going to go to a judge. You, you can't be sloppy. You can't be ill-disciplined. You can't be distracted. Yeah. You have to get your evidence sorted out. You've got to have a plan. You've got to execute on it. And it's got to be presented in a, you know, 
in a really compelling way to a judge. And I do find that in high performance. I do. I think, you know, Luke Donald um, was absolutely outstanding at not only coming up with his plan, but relentlessly sticking to it, despite all the noise around him Mm. every day for a year, and then bringing it to life with the players over those three days in Rome. And, you know, that is the difference, not the sexiest thing, but it is the difference often between winning and losing. And, you know, I get frustrated sometimes when I'm working with people in these different environments. And, you know, when I go in there, we sort of reconnect to what the hell the plan is. But when I've been away, gone off in all these different areas, got distracted by all these sort of shiny things and have actually stopped properly implementing the little steps that are going to make the difference. And, yeah, yeah, maybe it's part of my background, maybe my personality, but I do really believe that. I think it's the discipline to stick to it and push it every day, which yeah. is the difference. And do you say, Owen, do you have um, measurement? Like, I suppose, obviously, what buckets measured gets done. I suppose and when you have a scoreboard in place, it's when the best of, like if you're playing a sport and there's no scoreboard, you know, it's not going to be um, an enjoyable endeavor and it's not going to be worthwhile. So do you bring that approach to the strategy and set a scoreboard up or support them around measuring progress over time that you can't hold accountability, you can't clearly see if we're winning or losing at any moment in time? Yeah, wherever, that, wherever yeah. we can use analytics data to help people be clear on what's expected and to be accountable for that, you know, where you mm-hmm. can. But there are some things where you can't really do that. You can't measure it to the second decimal point. And I don't freak out about that. I mean, some people say that unless you can measure it, it doesn't have value. I think that's complete rubbish. Um, You know, there's a lot of things in my family that we can't measure, again, to two decimal points, Mm. um, but are critically important to how we operate and how we perform. You know, our levels of stress, our levels of attention we give to each other rather than stuck in devices actually giving attention to each other. Um, ability to be in the moment when things don't go well, how we respond to that, you know, how psychologically safe my 16 year old son feels to be vulnerable to his mum and dad about something mm. that's worrying him. You can't measure those things, but they're bloody important. So, you know, I think that, yes, I agree with you, but also don't be deterred from yeah. common sense and things that might not be as measurable. And what can happen, I'm sure you've seen it in high performance environments is that people love the analytics and the data and the scoreboarding. So all of that stuff becomes the most important stuff. Whilst things like the team culture and some of that, which is harder to measure in the same way, gets relegated. Well, that's stupid. It's more important, actually, to have people in a sense of togetherness and cohesion and clarity about what they're doing than to get a 78% recovery rate in tackles. Hmm. Yeah, and I think one drives the other. I suppose ultimately, I think the, yeah, the do, culture yeah. culture drives the the performance. I think there's a more there would be more a more excitement built towards the measurement of their actual strategic journey once when, when there is a strong culture facing that. Like you know, so uh, definitely the the culture is. I uh, watched that phrase: culture eats strategy for breakfast. You know, you would have heard that loads of times. It's something that's thrown around very. Yeah, very, very uh, much, you know. Well, just on that, I mean, I, I'm being a bit geeky here. I don't like that quote um, 
because culture and strategy to me uh, should be interwoven together like a basket. And what I mean by that is you can have the best strategy in the world, but if you don't have a culture which can deliver on it, then it's meaningless. But also you could have a great culture, supposedly, but if you don't have a good strategy or plan as to how to succeed, they are completely interdependent. So, yeah, I I like to see them working together rather than in competition with each other. Absolutely. Totally agree. And I can definitely see that in, in the work that we do. And um, a key part of it, as you mentioned, quite a, quite a lot along the conversation on is the, the leadership. And I know you um, you would have worked with some powerful, uh, great captains through your journey and what you're doing in your work, you're doing and great leaders in organizations. Can you give me an idea of what, what it is that, you know, the best of those leaders that say that, that makes them great. Like what 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 do they do? What characteristics, what principles, what do they stand by? You know, what what is, you know, something common across leadership that, you know, you know that would make a huge difference positively to the team, because they're the leaders. Well, what is it about them? I don't I don't use the terminology great leaders. I don't I think that can be unhelpful because if you it can be very intimidating for somebody if you think I, I need to be to be to lead people is quite a responsibility and to think that the threshold is you need to be a great leader like for most people that's be too much so i i've worked with some some wonderful leaders they're all different i've yet to find the perfect leader the leader that is is great at all aspects of it i've, I've yet to meet mm-hmm. that person i suspect they don't exist pretty sure about that yeah. like the perfect parent probably doesn't exist so to me, what's important is to double down on what they're strong at um, and making sure that's very authentic to them and and really, really doubling down on that, okay? Really, really making sure that that's the part of their leadership which is going to shine. Um, not trying to mimic what they think a great leader looks like um, or trying to pretend something they're not. So people like Gareth Southgate, Luke Donald, they're just completely authentic. They're not mm. perfect leaders. They've actually got weaknesses, you know, Absolutely. breaking news. So it's fine. That's not breaking a Breaking news. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, they are aware of it and they will try and work on it. But there are certain things that they aren't great at and actually they never want to be great at. For example, giving difficult um, news to people. <laughs> You know, a lot of leaders, a lot of football, I'd imagine. Yeah, because you have to tell people they're not playing or, you know. Yep. So they find a way, but they're not great at it and they hate it and they don't want to be great at it. Um, And that's absolutely fine. So I think the key thing is, you know, is leading, is creating an environment for people to achieve the goal. That's obviously critical. Being responsible that making sure that they can visualize i.e. vision, what it is that we're in the pursuit of. They have to take responsibility for the game plan, the, the, the strategy. Okay, It can be inherited or it could be adopted, but they need to take responsibility for it. They can't be a bystander to it. They need to own it. Mm. Um, and, and again, driving that environment. And you know that, that, that are the basic things. It comes back to most of our conversation, which has really been it's common sense. And it's just simple. Just do those things well. You don't have to be give Churchillian speeches. Now, Luke, Gareth, they don't give Churchillian speeches, okay? Wonderful leaders, yeah. but they don't do it. You don't need to, it's not all about that. It's just these simple things. Yeah. Please, what are we trying to do? Yeah. How are we going to go about it? And is this an environment where I feel like I can thrive in or not? And 
they're, they're, they're the things that they spend most of their time thinking about and they have discipline around that. Yeah, I think you made a great point on around the great, the, the, the perfect leader doesn't exist, you know, it's like you just, and, and as a leader, it can be, you, you kind of might want to be the perfect leader. So it's about just, I suppose, to put a simple sentence on it is kind of just looking at yourself and trying to, you know, try and be, try and live from your strengths as best you can and, you know, help other people to do the same and help the team collaborate in, in a way that they can bring it all together, right? So it's kind of just, you know, when you phrase it like that, I suppose, I know I probably didn't do a good job of rephrasing what you would have shared, but it just can be very, um, it's very, it can be very attainable then. And I'm not seeing as as daunting for people in leadership roles to always try and be, you know, that exceptional leader. Well, I, I can think of my you know? if you, you know, the most powerful leadership I've experienced was my mother, who was 39 years of age and became a widow with four mm. children. Yeah, man. And she she didn't ask for it. She didn't apply for it. She didn't study for it. But she had to lead our family through what could have been you know, a, a catastrophic episode, really. It could have easily happened. Mm. You know, some of us could have ended up in prison and all sorts of things could have happened. Yeah. Yeah. But she she led us. She created a vision of what we were trying to achieve together. She um, created a really great environment. I'm extremely grateful. She's an awesome mum, but she you yeah. know, really was great at empowering us and not micromanaging us. So the other things I think about with, with great leadership, so the idea that you know you're born to it, or that you know you 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 have a sole focus on being a great leader, I don't really get that. I think yeah. it's about people through circumstance and intention who end up in a position where they're responsible for leading others, and then going about it in a selfless way. And yeah. I just don't know. I don't think there is a paradigm model of what that looks like. I think it's all depending on the individual and their context. Yeah, thanks, Owen. And I would imagine like organization like working with organizational teams and leadership teams and organizations and businesses and then you've got like sporting artists you know that 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 world what's the difference <laughs> it's a broad question i know but like how do you experience both sides or is there a difference there isn't no i mean yeah. that's the biggest myth that there is is that there's high performing environments and cultures which are like somehow on some other planet than the rest of human endeavor. There is no, there is no difference between the family, the classroom, the office, the sports locker room. Mm. There isn't. It's all about human beings coming together in the pursuit of something. And all the principles apply just the same. And our hormonal state, um, how we're wired biologically, that, that, that doesn't change. Okay. It, it, it's the same. Mm. Well, what can be a difference, which is not a terminal thing, is that in these so-called high-performing environments, they realize actually that they want to get this stuff right because otherwise it can be pretty disastrous. So they put more effort yeah. into it. And that's yeah. why we get the high-performance podcasts and all these things, because those environments yeah. have put a bit more thought and effort and investment into it. Um, and also that there's a very much a, a scrutinized whether it's successful or not. So that becomes a, you know, obviously people are interested in that and that becomes a bit of a focal point. But if you're asking the question, you know, what are the fundamental differences? There aren't any differences. How I turn up with my mates in the pub versus a business meeting versus 
I'm still the same basic individual who's going to respond to the same things, going to need a sense of belonging to feel really good, want to feel psychologically safe in all these places, want to feel a good positive energy, don't want to be overstressed. I mean, I'm, you know, we're all the same. It's just sometimes there's these archetypes of these environments which um, are different. Hmm. No, I appreciate that, Owen. That's, again, very powerful and I can resonate with that. And just a question on failure, because obviously in these endeavours that, you know, you mentioned that there's a lot of um, energy and movement towards winning the Ryder Cup and winning the, the World Cup and, you know, which is only one winner, which which is the reality of the the competition and life. So how how do you kind of I suppose how do how how do teams and individuals within that team deal with failure or not? Maybe trying their best but not doing their best. How how does that? Can you tell us? Can you give some insight or share some thoughts around how best to overcome failure and overcome not winning or not achieving that actual strategy? that you would share earlier. Well, you remember, you know, earlier on, we talked about when I go into an environment, what are we um, trying to influence? Mm. And the first thing I said was, how do we define success? And so I push hard on that. I want a well-rounded definition of success. If someone says, if we're in a 12-team competition, in some ways, someone says that success is winning the trophy, then I, I, you know, it's not for me to tell them, That's, but I will yeah. challenge them and saying, so you're saying if the 11 teams don't achieve it, or if certainly if you don't yeah. achieve it, that is failure. Is that correct? And, uh, you know, what I generally find is that it becomes much more nuanced as we explore that question. You know, mm. for example, sometimes teams are aware that they're actually going to be at their best in a year or two. So they may aspire to try and win, but that what they are doing is build, is creating building blocks for a sustained competitiveness down the line. Okay, well, that's important to friggin' know that, and that's important for, that we all are on the same page about that because that and that means that we may well have a very successful season without picking up the trophy. There are other situations where, and the Ryder Cup was one, where it's a bit more binary. This is either going to be success or failure depending on whether we win or lose okay so the fact of the matter is is there's no sort of in those type of situations which are actually not the most common most common Mm. we can define success in a way which allows us to not necessarily pick up the trophy um so it's about growing as a team growing as individuals it's about um the, the human experience of spending this time together all of these things can count towards um having a successful season but there will be times, and I've been involved in plenty, and they're not enjoyable, where we are good to go in terms of being competing for that trophy and we don't achieve it. Mm. And this is where you know fans and the media need to, I think, give a bit of respect to the people who put themselves in that forum mm. because they are setting themselves up for a hell of... In those situations, it ends in tears every single time. Yeah. They're either tears of Absolutely. joy or tears of pain and suffering. Yeah. And to put yourself in those positions year after year, people should really respect that because you, you're really making yourself emotionally vulnerable. So when I go in there, I, I take my hats off to them. Like you're, and mm. especially the more, more high-profile cases, it's just so much eyeballs on them that I, I respect the hell out of that. 
So, but the reality is, and you're right, it's just a brutal reality is that if yeah. you feel like you're good enough to win and you don't, and you don't perform to your best level, it is friggin' disappointing. And it mm. sits with you. There is no, nothing I can say to make that go away. Yes, we can pull out a few cliches about, you know, a learning experience, learning, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. but sometimes that's not enough and it's just painful and it sits yeah. with you. Okay. And if, and a lot of people aren't really got the constitution for that and I don't blame them. And it's, if that's the case, it's not your place to work and play because that there will be more disappointment than glory. I can tell you that. So yeah, I, I respect that even more and more as I'm involved in it. And um. I find it very stressful myself to be sort of in those situations. But, you know, most of, I want to re-emphasize a point. Most of the time, if we do a proper job on what success looks like, we don't have to necessarily become number one. We can yeah. still have a successful season and keep the story moving forward. Yeah. I probably ask that question more selfishly, Owen, because it's, it is an experience that I'm going through right now with my own local team in Cork. We had a bad year. I was captain. So I'm. It's not no cliche or no. Nothing's going to change. I, yeah. I feel a certain way about it. It's. Yeah. I don't feel good about it, and I feel responsible to a degree, and I feel bad, and it's 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 just pain. It's just pain. It's painful. Nothing anyone can say can change that. So um. I don't think so. But you, you will find a moment soon where that all becomes energy for next season or the next yeah. part of the journey for you and. Um, that's the beautiful thing about sport in particular, I suppose, is that every season you get a chance to write a new chapter. And, mm. you know, if you get your head in that space, then you can move on from some of those sufferings you've had. Uh, it's, look, and that's life. You know, that's life. And I think you're right. It, it does. Um, it, there, there will come a point in time where it'll generate massive energy towards something powerful in the future. And, um, one last question on kind of maybe two because I love to I love to talk about your workshop, but you mentioned parenting, right? Obviously, I've I've, I've two young kids, two and three. Beautiful, challenging, and beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> your your kids are a little older, on right? So as you know, it's yeah. um, it's it, it's a magical experience, but it's you're, you know you're always going to be challenged in in that process. But any like as for fathers, and you mentioned earlier, just being a perfect parent doesn't exist, right? But What's one hell of a good parent from your experience as a, as a peak performance coach, right? What's a, a high-performance dad? Hmm, that's a good parent. question. Um, well, I, I wouldn't call myself one, I think. Every day, I don't think you can ever tick the box on that. Yeah. Um, as the same with any type of leadership, but you can never tick the box. Every day, there is a new set of conditions and challenges that you're going to have to face. Hmm. And so it all starts over again every day. So, you know, I, I've got great relationships with my kids, but I am well aware that either of them could come home tonight with some news or some issue. And if I don't manage that well, um, then it could mm. damage our relationship and that would be bad parenting. So, you know, there's obvious things like the unconditional love and the sense of positivity and optimism. But I suppose the one thing I, I've focused on a little bit as they're getting a bit older, mine are 10 and 16, is what I really want them to do is to create a really positive, authentic sense of their own identity. 
So what mm. I mean by that is like my identity, which I put out there in belonging is like, I'm very proud of my Maori, English and Irish roots. Mm. Uh, my school playing for the first 15, the, like, the big things for me still are. Um, the work that I do now has a big bearing on my own sense of my identity. You know, I'm not a European, but you know, Got the, I certainly feel like it. Oh, and you've got the Irish Irish heritage um, on. So you are. Yeah. You're, no, true, 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 true. Yeah. yeah. So I've got my own sense of identity. And there are bits of, in my lineage and that which really resonate with me. But I do not enforce it on my kids. I've, I've, I've said to my kids, you just, it's one of the most beautiful things I think you can do in life is you work out who the hell you are. You tell us who you are. And if it's that some of their Polynesian heritage connects with them, great. But if it doesn't, that's fine. Some For some people, their sexuality is like a massive part of their identity story. Great. Mm. You know, but I want them to own it. I, I, I want them to go through life feeling like I belong to that group, that group, that group, and that group. And that gives me um, a sense of connection and a sense yeah. of pride. Uh, and, and these are the values that, I want to live my life by and you know this is my story and these are the chapters I want to write in it going forward I, I really I, I enjoy that I'm, I'm enjoying seeing them doing that and not just sort of feeling like they've got to replicate you know my story or my wife's story yeah yeah and I heard uh, Brené Brown right she shared an insight around the opposite of belonging is not isolation but fitting in conforming yeah so it's having your kids have the courage to, to step into to that. Great way to put it. Yeah, I, you know, it's, I was really struck by that. So, really powerful book. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be singing from the, the rooftops but with everybody getting this. I put it in the show notes, all of that. You do have a good workshop coming up as well on the 15th of November on I'll, I'll Be There. It's in London. It's in Harlequin's mm-hmm. Dub, right? Is yeah. there anything you want to share on that? Or Well, it's um, it's. Uh, I want to keep it reasonably intimate where... I've already been asked for the design of it and and I have got the morning is going to be around building, you know, a high performing environment anchored in a sense of belonging. Mm. And then the afternoon we're going to talk about um really driving values in a real in a real way. So yeah, we're going to be talking about that stuff. But basically we want everybody to come in with their own context and have an opportunity of voice and space to be able to share that with others. Hmm. and move that forward on the day. I don't want people to be passive and just like listening to some so-called expert me. I'll share stories and insights, but I'm some way approach to be prescriptive. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. We've got a pretty cool group of people coming from overseas and from here, good hmm. diversity of education, corporate, sport. And that's what I want. I want you to come and I want you to have a voice on that day. And I want you to enjoy the space. I want you to make new yeah. connections with people. And I want you to move forward, whatever challenges are front of mind. I want that to be a day where you feel like you, with the help of us, you know, took it forward a few steps. So yeah. that's on that. That's a, it's all, I think it's from nine yeah. till three. It's at the stoop in Twickenham and on the 15th of November. And yeah, there's still places available for people interested. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes. Look, I'm going to be there. So yeah, awesome. Anybody wants to. Join in, we bring we bring a group over. Um, look, on thanks very much. Your look again. I could I get, the conversation flew. I hope it was the same for you. I know yeah. I've I had a lot of questions that I didn't get a chance to ask. <laughs> so I'll be ready to come with those questions on the fifteenth of November. You're doing incredible work, and keep doing it. 
because you know in one in, in a subtle way it's it is making the world a better place so it's a privilege to, to speak and um excited to continue to connect so Owen thank you very much really appreciate, well, appreciate it appreciate you Stephen and thank you for inviting me on your show thanks so much for for staying with us on the podcast I got huge value from that and I know I could have spoke to Owen for a hell of a lot more and I'm actually really excited that I will be seeing Owen and I will be joining him on his training program in November mid-November so if any of you are listening in or go to that I would look forward to seeing you there as well so that's it guys please pass the podcast on to somebody who you think will find this useful and feel free to reach out at any stage if there's any questions you have or anything that I can help with I appreciate you being here I appreciate you being on the journey Dad, please have a great day great evening great night until next time the Living Bomb Team.